Kim Titi Abedot Chelek. This is Ezra Beck. And we're continuing on Daf Tzadiyalaf. Last week we read the uh, first of three stories uh, concerning debates between Gavir ben Psitha and representatives of uh, different peoples, uh, other peoples, other nations, uh, against, against uh, who are suing Israel before Alexander Mogdan. Alexander the Great. Um, we're going to read the next two stories uh, rather quickly, since I'm really eager to get to the Medrash that follows that. Uh, and I've less to add about this. The uh, last week's story concerned the debate with the people of Canaan, who claimed that Israel had usurped their land. And Gvir ben Spisa's answer was that uh, Canaan had been cursed by Noah before the land was even given out and had been declared to be a slave and therefore his possessions belonged to his betters, to his masters. And we discussed what I thought that meant. Uh, the next story is about B'nai Mitzrayim. The Egyptians sued the Jews because the Jews stole money when they left Mitzrayim. As it says in the Torah, Vayinatzlum et Mitzrayim. Um, they, they borrowed, Vayishvayashilum, they borrowed uh, vessels, gold and silver, and they, and they didn't give them back. Gvir ben Psi's answer is that uh, but you didn't pay us for the 400 years of slavery. And therefore you owe us more, you owe us more than uh, we owe you. And that answer leads to their not returning at all. And once again, the uh, Gemara says, And again, the same stories we had last week that it took place in a sabbatical year and they abandoned their fields because they were afraid of the what would take place if they had shown up before Alexander the Great for the final uh, session. And apparently those fields served to feed the Jewish people in that sabbatical year when they didn't have food of their own. Because um, okay, so that story is, uh, is nice. I'm sure it's familiar. Uh, it's an interesting story. Uh, recently, not that many years ago, I don't imagine he read the Gemara. I think he just read the Torah. Some Egyptian lawyer claimed that he was going to sue the state of Israel or the Jewish people in the world court on the same basis. Uh, I don't think it ever came to fruition. Um, th- there's an interesting idea implicit in the story as to who owes whom more. Uh, more or less, the claim here is being made by Kabir ben Sisa. I don't know if it's serious or not. It could be just rhetorical. <coughs> that the, um, the, the, the riches that the Jews took out of Egypt were basically their wages. It was, owed, it was owed to the Jews because they had been unjustly and, I guess, illegally uh, enslaved. Because normally a slave, you don't have to pay him wages. He's a slave. But the Jews were enslaved. And therefore, wages were, 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 owned, were owed them. We don't usually think of the slavery in Egypt as being a financial problem. Well, slavery is bad, but what's emphasized in the Midrashim is that it was cruel. And the purpose of the slavery, in fact, was to be cruel. It was to, to limit the birth rate to maybe even to eliminate eliminate the Jews. Uh, that was clearly Paro's plan. And therefore the Medrashim, you know, expound at length on, on the death and the suffering of the slavery. Uh, here you have a point which is uh, really emphasized. Namely that it was also financially unjust because they were unpaid. And at least that point, we, we got it back. Okay, the, fi- the, the, the final story, and I'll read this very, very quickly, in Gvir Sisa, has to do with B'nai Yishmael. Uh, I guess the Arabs. This might have immediate modern uh, applications. 
ושוב, פעם אחת, באו בני ישמעאל ובני קטורה לדון עם ישראל לפני אלכסנדרוס מוקדון. So the children of Yishmael and the children of Ketua, these are the other Middle Eastern peoples. B'nai Ketua basically in modern terms Arabs as well. Midian, etc. Amru lo Eretz Kanan shalanu b'shalachem. So they did, as opposed to Kanan, they didn't claim that they should get all of Eretz Yisrael, but they claimed that they should share it with the Jews. It belongs to, Eretz Kanan belongs to us and to you. Simple claim. The land of Israel was given, the land of Canaan was given to Avraham Avinu. Avraham Avinu had two, two sons, uh, Yishmael and, uh, and Yitzhak. And since it says that came in Ektur as well, so although this wasn't explicated in the Pesukim, but he had many sons. Those, all the children of Abraham should share in Eretz Israel. What's called in certain uh, apologetic circles today, the Abrahamic tradition. The children of Abraham. So the Semites, the, the Arabs and the Arabian people and the Jews are all Semites and they should share in the legacy of Amravinu, namely the Arabs Israel. So you have the same story in Gvir ben Psisa, Lachim Tunlan Rishut, and the Lachadunimem, if they have the Smokton. So again, Gvir ben Psisa, a volunteer to be the representative for the same reason. He says, if I lose, it won't be any skin off your backs because you just say that it was an idiot and if I win, It'll show you how bad they look. What did he say to them? He said, you're basing your uh, claim on the Torah. The Torah says that Eretzah was given to the Jews. So he says, well, then read the next passage in the Torah. The Pasuk explicitly states that Abraham basically disinherited or he, he gave presents, but Abraham gave presents. He paid off the other children and sent them away. Avshanatan uh, Agatin. Rashi says that Agatin is a Greek word meaning disinheriting. Ktabim Agatin is a a a writ that removes one from the inheritance. Under Greek law and Roman law, uh, it's possible to do that with almost with impunity. Father has total control over his, over his inheritance. So basically, it's a perfectly good answer. That, that, that is in fact the pshat. This way is Chazal understood the pshat. Of uh, what's taking place in the Torah, Avraham Avinu had many children, but Kibi Yitzchaki Karei the Chazara. Avraham's many children, only one inherits the um, inherits the national, inherits the divine part, the Torah part of his of his portion. And in fact, Avraham did in fact give them matanot; he gave them something. But the in, the, the the legacy of Avraham, the spiritual and the physical counterpart to that spiritual legacy. Namely, Eretz Yisrael, that is only for Yitzchak, and Abraham, in fact, did this in his lifetime. He, he separated the children. Okay, this is, is, a, this is an, an Agadah story, but the, the, the point here is, in fact, I think, really the Pshat that was taking place in, uh, in Pshat Chayi uh, Sarah. Uh, but now the Gemara asks a question which I want to at least uh, relate to for a few minutes. My Matanot. The Pasuk says, 
ולפני אפילו הקשיבה של אברהם, נתן אברהם מתנות. אברהם gave everything he owned to יצחק, but to the children of the concubines, אברהם gave presents, מתנות. מהי מתנות? What presents did he give them? Well, if I had not, an important question. He gave each one of them a, uh, a teddy bear. He gave one of them a thousand dollars. What difference does it make? The point was he was, he was paying them off. The Gemara answers, Amar Rabbi Yimri Abar Abba Manamed, Shemasal Lehem Shem Tum'ah. It's really extraordinary answer. It's quoted by Rashi in the Torah. The presents that Avram gave to his other children was Shem Tum'ah. The, uh, a name of Tum'ah, a name of defilement. Rashi says, Kishuf Uma Shedim. Rashi in Sanhedrin says that Shem Tum'ah is, means magic, necromancy. And Maseh Shedim, the control of demons. What we call the black arts, black magic. Very, very strange answer. The traditional Mephashim view the Gemara saying, okay, he gave him peasants. Peasants have to be good things. What did he give them? He gave them the methods of black magic. And then they ask, why is that permitted? It's also There's a prohibition in the Torah of using magic. So you have to discuss whether or not non-Jews are included in that prohibition or not, whether it's with Neivel, Totite, Nechshol involved. They have all these technical discussions. Whatever you can answer, it's still very weird. Why did everyone give them something which, which is basically not good? Even if there's no technical prohibition involved. But, I mean, that's not a present. Why not give them a met? Why doesn't he really give them a thousand dollars? I think it's clear what the meaning of this medrash is. On, on the personal level, Abba Mavina should give them something nice. And of course, this is a useful thing. Uh, if you're not going to be Jewish uh, and you're allowed to use these methods, you can probably make a lot of money using them. But I don't think that's really the point. The point is what they're saying is, the Gemara is explaining the meaning of Vayitain Avraham the meaning of this passage isn't financial. The meaning of this passage is destiny. There's a separation. Avraham Avinu has a family. And we would naturally assume that the family is the basis for the development of, of the nation. And of course that's really true. The Jewish people are the people who developed out of a family. The family that they developed from is Beit Yaakov, Yaakov Avinu's family. Avraham Avinu's family is divided, divided by Avraham. By Yishalchem Me'al Yitzchak. He sends them away. The word Lishaleach, as opposed to Yishlach, uh, what we call Binyan Pi'el and not Binyan Kal, is more than sending, it's banishing or expelling. The meaning of this agartin, this this writ of disinheritance, is not merely, or even not even mostly financial. It's the sundering of Avram Vinu's family into two, part of which will be the continuation, and eventually will be the Jews, and will inherit Eretz Israel. And everything else. 
and the other part is sent away. And because they're sent away, they're not merely sent away from the city of Hebron or from Eretz Yisrael. It's the division of the world into two. What remains in Avram's house is good. And if you're sent away, then you're being cast into not necessarily a poor world, riches may be there, but a a world of defilement. That's why the use of the term Koach Tum'ah. Could have said, as Rashi says, it could have said magic. Could have said Kishuf. The word Tum'ah is a value word. It's the entire world of the opposite of purity. And, and, and in Chazal's mind, when you get away from purity, so there are all sorts of powers and maybe riches that are present there, but they're defiled in their essence. And that more or less goes under the category of magic, necromancy, demons, uh, whatever, the, the forces of impurity. And so I, I think, you'll ask, so why did Abraham Abinu do this for them? So I think the real shot is that he didn't necessarily give this to them. By sending them away, that's what he gave them. If you've, uh, uh, call, there's an expression in Chazal, when you want to praise, Rabbi Tarfon praises Rabbi Akiva. Ashrecha Rabbi Akiva, kol aporesh mucha, kaporesh menachayim. Rabbi Akiva, I mean, Rabbi Tafel was having an argument with Rabbi Akiva. In the end, he considered he was right. He said, anyone who leaves you has left light, has left life. If, if, if you leave Avraham Avinu, and of course, that's not their choice. Avraham Avinu is sending them away. But there's a consequence to being sent away. It's not merely geographic. It's not even merely financial. Being sent away from Avraham Avinu's family, meaning being sent away from the, the core of being God's people, means that you'll wind up with Korach with the forces of, of desecration, defilement, black magic, etc. Theoretically, and perhaps I think practically, there, there is a neutral ground. You know, there are many places in Chazal we have the concept of righteous Gentiles, etc. And it can exist, and it probably does exist, but you have here the conception that in general, the world is divided into two. It's very dichotomic. Especially for those who grew up in Avraham Avinu's family. If they leave, they're going to the other side. The expression I just used is really indicative of that. There is the other side. You're either on this side or you're on that side. And it could very well be because these people were very ambitious. They'd been brought up by Avraham Avinu. They had, they had a taste of where they should go. When they're sent out, they're not going to settle for more or less nothing, more or less a simple world. They're going to search out something else. They're going to wind up being on the other side. The side of purity and holiness, the side of desecration and profanity. And so, what what the Gemara is really is really saying is that especially in the context of the previous story, does Eretz Yisrael belong to more than one people? It's not, it's not rivalry over real estate. Eretz Yisrael is God's estate. There's no place there for those who've been cast out. And therefore, Natan Lehem Matanot, he gave them the only thing he could give them. So again, I don't know what exactly he gave them, but in the end, he gave them the only, the only thing he could give them, which is 
the rest of the world, the other world. Everything that's outside of Avraham's family, everything that's outside of Avraham's true legacy is outside. And if it's outside, it's Koch, it's Koch Atumah. It's a very stark picture. And I think that maybe we shouldn't treat it as being the only picture. There is, there are more gray. There is more gray in the world than this, than this picture indicates. But this picture is indicating also something which is very, very important. Okay, I really want to get to the next story, which we'll talk about today. And that's a fascinating story about a different discussion between a Jew and a non-Jew. This time between Antoninus and Rebbe. As opposed to the cases we read previously, where the non-Jewish interlocutor was a, was, was hostile and, and perhaps not even meant to be taken that seriously, the figure of Antoninus, who is generally assumed to be, it's called Antoninus Caesar, it's generally assumed to have been, in fact, one of the Caesars from the Antonine uh, dynasty of Rome. It would be nice to imagine that it's Marcus Aurelius, the philosopher, although I think most historians think that it wasn't, uh, but someone more or less along that, along the, in that family, who had many, many discussions with Rebbe, all of which present him as being a positive figure, a, a true... A searcher after the truth, not a gay, he didn't become Jewish, but a, but a, a, a righteous and serious friend of, of, of Rabbeinu HaKadosh, of Rebbe, of Abidah Nasi. And therefore the discussions are always should be taken seriously from both points of view. His questions are good questions, and, and the answers are going to be good answers. So what did he say? Amar lay Antoninus le Rebbe, with the very end of Tzadi Aleph Amud Aleph. Guf unushama yicholim liftor atzman min adin. This is a famous uh, Agadah. I think it's taught to children. I imagine everybody is at least almost familiar with the idea. Antonina said to Rebbe that his question involves divine justice. The Jews believe that uh, even if in this world there's no justice, there'll be justice in the next world. In the end, God's justice will take place. The body and the soul both can excuse themselves, can exonerate themselves. Minadin, Ketzad. When they come before God, let's say after death, so the soul says, or the, let's just stop the body, the body says, I didn't do anything wrong. I have no power to do anything wrong. From the time that the soul left me, I don't do anything at all. I just lie still. In the grave. In other words, bodies cannot do sin. The neshama, the soul says, I also don't do anything wrong. Since I have no body, I haven't done anything wrong. I'm just flying in the air like a bird. That's the language of the Midrash. In other words, the point is that human sin is somehow involves a combination of body and soul. The implication here, it's an interesting implication, which we're not going to talk about, is that the soul without the body is really... Is, is really pure and doesn't commit sin. This is an idea which has a, a, a great traction in the Middle Ages. It it's, uh, goes back to a, 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 a basically deeply Greek idea uh, that the body is the root, bodily desires, lusts, passions, passions of body things and not, and not psychological things. Um, it's, it's, it's the body which is the root of those passions and lusts which lead people to sin. The soul is searching after God. The soul is pure. So in any event, this is the argument made. And therefore, uh, the two elements here should not be punished. The two elements individually 
cannot be punishment. The Rebbe gives the famous answer, Skip a little bit of the reading. King has a has an orchard and he has two guards, one of whom is lame or crippled, cannot walk, and one of whom is blind. He did that so that they themselves shouldn't steal. Uh, so what is, what happened? The uh, crippled guard said to the blind guard, put me on your shoulders. Uh, first of all, he told the blind person that there were good things to eat. Put me on your shoulders. I'll tell you where to go. You will carry me there. And they had a good time. They ate up all the, ate up all the fruit. Uh, eventually, the king comes and he knows that there are no fruit. Uh, so the two gods say to him, don't come to me. The cripple says, don't ask me. I couldn't get them. I can't even walk. The blind person says, don't come to me. I, would, I can't see anything. So he figures it out. What does the king do? He places the cripple on the shoulders of the blind person and he judges them together. So the same thing. This is how we got into our parak. We're talking about resurrection. In the end of time, Kashpochu returns the soul to the body and Dan Otam Ke'echad. So the ultimate justice will be in, in, imposed on the recombination of body and soul in order to answer your question. Your question, in fact, what does Rabbi St. Antoninus? Your question is an excellent question. I agree. The answer is, you're right. One cannot truly do justice to a soul without a body or to a body without a soul. And that's why there'll be resurrection. That God, he does justice, will call to the heavens and the earth. It's a beautiful explanation of the Pasuk. Why, does, why, does, why is when there's justice being done, why does God call to heaven above? And to earth, heaven is the soul, earth is the body. God has to call them both to come together because justice needs to be done on both of them. Um, what's the point of this story? So first of all, we have an interesting idea. I think the most important point, actually. I'll say it right away. We were discussing in the past, what's the point of resurrection? Why is Tchadamitim important? It's an interesting future historical fact, but why is it one of the Yisadot, uh, uh, one of the principles of the faith? So we give a number of answers. Here the answer is quite clear. Resurrection is necessary as an expression of ultimate justice. In order for God to do final, the final day of judgment, it needs to be done to resurrected human beings who reflect the original sinners. The sinners were body and soul, and therefore, the punishment, and I assume also the reward, is, is, is body and soul. Okay, so this gives us a new, a new uh, attitude towards what is the point of resurrection. In the past I said it was second chances, I said it was the ultimate nature of life, that bodies are alive because they're connected to, to God. And here's a new thing, that God puts people back together because uh, it's necessary in order to do justice. This makes a lot of sense in terms of we know that Tchatamitim is connected to Yom Hadin. It's connected to times of the Mashiach when there'll be ultimate. There is a concept in Judaism of the final day of reckoning, the final day of justice, of, just, of, of judgment. And they're all somehow connected more or less in the same year or the same day. So that's what this measure is saying. What's the, really, what's the point behind it? I think there's a very, very important point here. After all, To our minds, 
The question of Antoninus doesn't make that much sense. Let's say I'm, I'm a judge and uh, we have this criminal and uh, he shot somebody, he killed somebody. Now, he's no fool. He, he, he's been watching television. After he shot his victim, he took the gun and he threw it into the ocean. Can't find the gun, but we know he did it anyhow. Two witnesses says he did it. So he's going to come to the judge. He's going to say, don't judge me. I didn't kill the guy. The gun killed the guy. Can I kill people? I can't shoot people. And then the judge will have to say, okay, let's find the gun. Put it in your hand, then I'll judge you both. Of course not. The person killed, he used the gun. But the gun is not part of the crime. The crime was the person. In other words, the gun is only a an expedient. The gun is only a vehicle. It's only a clay. It's only a means. But the killer was a human being. I think most of us have a conception. We imagine that Judaism, which believes in soul and body, with Antoninus is questioning Rebbe, is about you Jews. You Jews believe in a dualism of soul and body. The way most of us understand soul and body is that the body is merely a means to an end. It allows you to carry out your intentions. But the criminal, the agent, the tzaddik agent, is of course the personality, is the soul. Just as if a person lost his gun, we would still accuse him of being a murderer. If a person loses his body and goes to Olam Haba, God can still accuse him of being, of being a killer. Antoninus clearly assumed that that was not true, or else he has no question. And I think maybe by accepting this question, agrees that uh, Antoninus's understanding of Judaism is correct. The body is not merely a, a an apparatus used by the soul to further its means. In this world, body and soul are united. There's a, uh, a sentence from a French uh, philosopher, a psychologist philosopher, Merleau-Ponty, uh, which very much resonates with me. Uh, Merleau-Ponty once said, the soul is not in the body the way I am in the room. Now, uh, sometimes, as dualists, we say, okay, the soul is a human being, and he's, he's living in a body. And what is death? Soul escapes from the window, and now lives without a body. Uh, this conception uh, goes back uh, centuries to an ancient Greek uh, pun. So I, don't, I don't know a lot of jokes in Greek. Uh, I think this is the only one. This is the only joke I know in Greek. Uh, it was attributed to Pythagoras. Uh, in, in Plato, the idea is usually attributed to Pythagoreans. Apparently, it's not exactly true, but it does make a difference. Uh, it was attributed to Pythagoras. Uh, soma Sema. Soma means body, and Sema means either tomb or prison. The body is the prison cell of the soul. And death is liberation. 
person leaves jail, a person leaves the imprisonment of his soul. I think Judaism denies that conception. Not because we're not dualists, but because our dualism is integral. In this world, there is a world after you die. But in this world, the soul isn't merely residing in the body. It's embodied. Or the body is enlivened. The body is inspirited. And the soul is embodied. There is a unity. It's a, it's a, um, it's a chemical composition of being body and soul. What, one of the, one of the things, one of the reasons why modern philosophy finds the whole conception of dualism difficult is because it, it's so difficult to separate the two of them conceptually. And the ancient Greeks, and reflected in the Rambam, for instance, have this conception, they can say what belongs to what. So thinking belongs to the soul. The Greeks thought that passions belong to the body. They were humors, they were, they were created by your blood and by your, by your lymph nodes, etc. Too much blood makes you angry. Uh, too much black bile makes you depressed. To this day, depression in Hebrew is marashichorah, black bile. This is an old ancient Greek medical theory. Uh, modern psychology, or I think which we understand about ourselves, makes it clear that the two are very much intertwined, not just because of, 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 of psychiatric research about the influence of brain, but also because, like, what would your personality be like if you didn't have a body? How do any of us can even imagine that? What, what does it mean to live in Olam Haba without a body? I believe in Olam Haba, but I can't imagine what it's like. It's not to say, oh, it'll be like that, but I won't be able to eat. Uh, our thoughts, our feelings, our personalities are, are not just influenced. They're, they're, they're molded. They surround things having to do with bodies. Sensory perception. What is it like not to see? And seeing is a, is, is a connection to, to other bodies. To taste, to smell, to feel. What exactly is left? I think a lot is left, but what can you describe it? The soul, my soul does not reside in my body the way I am in the room. I'm one. It's, it's put together, and when you die, they, they, they're taken apart. There's a medrash in the beginning of Breshit. An astonishing medrash. The medrash says that there are certain sounds heard or, or loud enough to be heard around the world, but we don't hear them. We're spared having to hear them. One of them is the screech of the soul when it leaves the body. The medrash says when a person dies, his soul screams in agony. We don't hear it. What, what is the Medrash trying to say? Now, after all, the author of the Medrash believes that Olam Haba is a wonderful place. He thinks that ultimately it's good to die for most people. Mind you, he doesn't say that it's the screech of Vishayim, the evil people who are going to Gehenna. He says all souls, when they leave the body, they cry out in, in, in a cry that resounds from one end of the world to the other. Dying isn't an exit. It's tearing asunder. It's being torn into two. And nothing can mitigate that, including the fact that it's good for you. We're talking about a major operation here. 
It's it's a it's a it's a it's a a tearing apart of something which was which which was one. That's the basis of Antoninus's question. From the point of view of justice, the soul without the body, as obviously the body without the soul, it's not the same thing. And therefore, a it's unjust to some extent to demand of the soul to pay for the sins of the embodied soul. I think the question is even is even further. Antonius is, is, is saying the whole theory of dualism makes no sense. Because when you take apart the embodied soul, you're left with two other things. A dead body, which is not really human, and an unembodied soul, which is not really human. Now you will say this represents maybe the Romans' love of this world. But we, we know that the next world is the better world. Rebbe accepts the question. He accepts the implication of the question. You know, to some extent you're right. I assume Rebbe says that, because Rebbe believes in Olam Haba, that it's a wonderful thing to go to Olam Haba. And it's not merely a trip. It's a, it's a transformation. But it's a good transformation. It's something which man will, will enjoy, will benefit from. But nonetheless, it's true that it's a transformation and to some extent, your state in the spiritual, disembodied world we call Alam Haba, does not reflect merely a continuation, doesn't reflect your life in this world. It's related to it, but doesn't reflect it truly. And the answer is So now I'm saying isn't merely okay, the justice needs to be put together. I'm saying something much more deep. is a necessary part of Judaism because this world is the real world. This world is the real man. The Torah is about man, not about an angel related to man. And therefore the future, the true future of man is to be man. Better, improved, refined. It could be, this doesn't say in this Gemara, but it could be that passing through Olam Haba and then Tchiat makes the end result even better. I don't know what happens in Olam Haba. But it, it could be even, it's even better for the final result. But in any event, the true end of man is to be man. And man is this world. Man is embodied soul in life and body. The divorce of man into two parts, it's not detrimental, but it's false. And therefore, A, justice needs to be done on the true man. But I would widen it. I think that, and, and the true man has to exist. If you aspire to perfection, you aspire to the goal of man, then you have to aspire to being man after Tchatamitim and not before. You will say to me, oh, but look at the story of the Chiger and the Suma, the cripple and the blind person. They weren't intertwined. They merely were operational. You're right. The story has a certain weakness to it. But I think the weakness is because we know that you can take them apart. And, and they both continue operating. So it was an, the story answered the Taina 
the argument about justice. But but it, it, what it's really saying is, relative to the stealing from the orchard, the person who stole from the orchard was a team that got put together. So we continue to think of them as separate because we know that once they leave the orchard, he goes home and he goes home. You and your body are not going to be separated in that way. Relative to the store of the orchard, they were one. And relative to your whole life, you're one. So this particular Gemara is presented to Chatamitim in a in a revolutionary manner. It's saying we believe in the resurrection of the body because we believe in the future of man. And the man who lived in this world, who was Oved Hashem, who did mitzvahs, who did Avevus, who, who, who built himself, was not by accident with the body, but was essentially with the body as well as soul. And the two of them were joined together and mixed and 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 and, and unified. And therefore the ultimate future of man will be the same way. And since death is part of life, so it requires a miracle. God has to put them back together. But that's why Yikra El Shamayim Al. We don't ignore the fact that this particular combination is truly miraculous because it's combining heaven and earth. It's not combining uh, water and sand. Do you recall from two weeks ago? The the or, or, or air and glass. The mashal uh, from two weeks ago. Soul and body is heaven and earth. So it's an amazing combination. But Yikra El Shamayim Me'al. He will call to the heavens above. The El Ha'aretz Ladin Imo. Yikra El Shamayim Me'al Zunishama. The El Ha'aretz Ladin Imo. Zeh Aguf. And that's it for today. We haven't completed Antoninus and Rebbe stories. These are always fascinating stories. We'll have a few more, which we'll deal with next week. A cult of.